This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. It was confirmed by the royal family today that Prince Philip has passed away at the age of 99. Michael Jackson is the president of the Institute for the Study of the Crown in Canada and joins us now. Michael, it's it's a difficult day, but at the same time, Prince Philip... He lived in 99, and when you look at the accomplishments, when you look at the honors, the commendations, all of those honorary degrees and memberships, uh, a full life was lived, wasn't it? It it sure was, you know, and it's too bad Prince Philip would have been 100 on June the 10th. He just missed it. He he was a great guy and a great life, and I had the privilege... um, when I was chief of protocol of Saskatchewan for a number of years, uh, meeting Prince Philip on uh, visits to our province. So, yeah, I got to know him a little bit. He has a, had a great life, and uh, more than the honorary degrees and the awards he accumulated, I think he would take pride in the contributions he made to the world through the institution of the monarchy and the crown, his interest in the environment before it was fashionable and wildlife his work for youth, his interest in science and technology, all these things um, filled his life. He, he gave so much of himself. Because you go thinking about the royal family, and we have conversations right now about the royal family and its place in Canada, and those continue on. But when you actually look at the contributions made around the world by the royal family, it would be pretty easy for them to just, well, sit back on thrones, right? That just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen, Mike. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, there are worker bees, uh, most of them anyway, and of course you're always get, you are, get the odd exception, but the ones I've dealt with over many years, the Queen herself, terrific worker, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Charles, Prince of Wales, Princess Anne, Prince Edward, they all devote their lives to serving the Crown and the Commonwealth, and they contribute a, an awful lot. That's a unique thing about monarchy you're 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 in it for life and you can make the best of it and most of them do we're talking with michael jackson president of the institute for the study of the crown in canada you mentioned meeting prince philip there are so many speeches maybe that we have seen in different presentations that he has been able to make or different speaking engagements mm-hmm. but you always seem to catch those those quips of of the suggestion of his sense of humor. Did you catch that when you met him? Absolutely, I did. On on the business he came here for, <clears throat> his great sense of humor, the, the ability to, to make people laugh, to put them at their ease, and what is inevitably a pretty formal occasion. He always had this quick sense of humor and a, a quick laugh. It might be very simple things, like, you know, uh, when I was coordinating their last visit to Saskatchewan for the province's centennial in 2005. At the end of it, they give you a little little thank you at the end. And Prince Philip handed me a, <laughs> a pen set in the box. He said, oh, you know, the, the box is worth more than the pen. <laughs> that, kind, that kind of, you know, it's small stuff, but it's, he, he, he complimented the Queen so well because she necessarily has to be formal, although she's a really nice person. But she had to be a little more formal because of her job. And he, he could uh, break the ice and make people laugh and what was otherwise perhaps might be a tense occasion. I, I think we all appreciated that. 
One of the history books that we've had recently is, of course, the series The Crown that was made. And you can debate accuracies and inaccuracies from now until the end of time. But at the same time, you did get a sense that when you choose to be who Prince Philip was and be married to the Queen, the role that that brings. How do you feel he he was in that role over his life. From what I've read um, and uh, heard about, it was a, a time frustrating for him, difficult for him. I mean, as you know, he had a very successful career as a young naval officer and was you know, destined for much bigger things I, 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 until, unfortunately, King George VI died in 1952 and his wife became queen. But he went out to show his interest in science and technology <clears throat> <clears throat> the environment, agriculture, physical fitness, um, intellectual pursuits. And I, I always think of a couple of the, the things, initiatives he took, like the Duke of Edinburgh's awards for young achievers that he founded in 1956 and has been taken over now by his um, his youngest son, Prince Edward, to challenge young people to see the best of themselves and realize their potential. And they had a gold, silver, and, and bronze awards for, for this. And it's a very successful uh, operation is still going strong. There's a section in most provinces in Canada. The other thing I remember him for is his um, uh, Commonwealth le- his um, Commonwealth leadership conferences, which he started in the in the sixties, and they they brought together um, the uh, Duke of Edinburgh's Commonwealth Study Conference. They brought together uh, young leaders of promise from labor, industry, and government in, in a, a conference every few years that brought them to one Commonwealth country. And he, he always come and personally take part in it. It was to encourage dialogue between uh, uh, labor and management and government. And that worked out very well. And Prince, Princess Anne, his daughter, has taken over that. Well, Michael, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and talking about the life of Prince Philip. Please keep safe and enjoy the weekend. Thank you very much. You too. That is Michael Jackson, president of the Institute for the Study of the Crown in Canada. Professor Jingras, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Let's first off outline what this connection might be between the stigma around obesity and maybe some hesitancy for people who could go and get a COVID-19 vaccine but may not really feel comfortable doing so. What's the connection? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it's a, an ironic and, and a bit of a painful connection in that the system that is part of creating the stigma around fat, fatness, quote-unquote obesity, is the system, the healthcare system, that's now inviting uh, people in, uh, and and they're showing some reluctance, which makes perfect sense to me, um, because again, it is it is the healthcare system that's been shown to be a place where uh, fat people are stigmatized, and so it's it's an incredible conundrum for people who are facing this oppression uh, to then examine all of these different elements together that you have so well articulated in your introduction, and I appreciate that. Um, And and I noticed, 
I want you to notice that I use the word fat instead of obesity because obesity is a word in itself that is stigmatizing. And so part of my effort to help address that stigmatization is to willingly use the word fat and, of course, to honor the words that people themselves want to be used in their own description of their their bodies. And so that's a political move that I make to help to disrupt this idea um, of the stigma around our body sizes. Yeah, that's very interesting. I was going to ask you, and I think a lot of us were wondering about that, the fact that you were using the word fat, because, you know, how did the word fat stop being used? How did we make that switch originally to, say, obesity? Well, again, this is originating from uh, the healthcare profession writ large that said, that made these links dubiously now that we look back at the research that shows the exact opposite, but made these links between a person's body size and their health or their longevity. And and that's where the, the stigma was born. And, and also the stigma comes from roots in anti-black racism as well, uh, anti-Indigenous racism. And so from a sociological point of view, and, and you're just indulging me here because I feel so passionately about these issues, these these issues are, are worth conversation, are worth studying. And now when we find ourselves with the added layer of a pandemic, and like you say, the ability to to go in and get a vaccine earlier. We know vaccines are going to help us move through the pandemic to to get to the other side. But yet, for for so many years prior to the pandemic, people have, may have felt so reluctant to to see their doctor about any issue because often it gets reduced to a conversation of Have you thought about losing weight, or uh, have you considered how your weight is affecting? this particular ailment. It could be anything from a sore wrist to a headache to infertility. So that's where this is born, is, is born in the, st- the connection, the false connection between someone's weight and their health. And then ironically, the, the way that people want to get healthier is by connecting with their healthcare professional, which could reinforce then that there's something wrong with them based on their weight. So it's a pathologizing of a person's um, health because of their weight, and, and it's very destructive and harmful. We're talking right now with Dr. Jackie Gingras, professor in the Department of Psychology at Ryerson University, and the idea that we have a number of people who are eligible to receive a vaccination for COVID-19 maybe earlier than what their age would provide, but they might be reluctant to do it simply because they don't feel comfortable saying, okay, well, here's the reason that I'm doing it. And that might come down to the at-risk factor that exists based on weight, and it delves right into the stigma that we've been discussing with Dr. Gingras. Dr. Gingras, is it Ontario and Alberta that have made the vaccine available for people who are, are considered perhaps more at risk because of weight? Um, I know for sure it's happening in Ontario, and I can't 
speak to the other jurisdictions that will open this, that will invite um, larger people in to get the vaccine. But what I do want to say, and you use the phrase at risk, and I'm really grateful to you for using that phrase because I I want to just stop and, and examine that for a moment. For people who have been invited to get your vaccine, I want to emphatically encourage you to do so for whatever reason, whether it be age, size, uh, whether you're a frontline worker, whatever, a teacher, whatever the reason, go and get your vaccine. At the same time, I want to honor uh, the risk that you may take by entering a system that could have someone there that says something that is stigmatizing about your size. And I want to just stop for a moment and look at this phrase at risk because what it really is is about people of size who are under threat because of stigma, because of fat stigma. And that it's this, now it's the stigma itself that is causing the, the negative health consequences. And this is research that's just coming out that it's not the fat necessarily, but it's the stigma itself that's causing inflammation of the uh, cardiovascular system. It's causing insulin resistance linked to um, non-insulin-dependent diabetes, those kinds of things. It, when you, when you are, uh, when you are in a, in a society that has views that are harmful to you, you, your body responds, and that's how fat stigma gets under our skin, that the views around us, people saying things that are harmful, that are prejudiced, that are discriminatory, can actually cause a physiological reaction within us. And that's, that's just how, how racism, how oppression, how discrimination, how what we call sizeism gets under our skin and actually causes health consequences. So I want us to take a moment and just Think about what we mean when we say at risk. Do we really mean under threat? And and that's something that I I want to honor people who may be reluctant to get a vaccine because of their size, because they feel under threat from the system that for so long has said their bodies are unacceptable. Dr. Shingras, you've been someone who has been very outspoken about this, and thank you for that. When we look at at the discussion that is going on, what do you hope comes from it? Well, I hope what comes from it is that people just take a moment and pause. I mean, this has been, to understate it, quite a year for, for all of us, for so many of us. And I want people to understand that oppressive discrimination discriminatory language and behavior and and thinking is so harmful. This is a moment for us to look at um, anti-Asian hate and how we can can stop that. It's a a time for us to look at how um, different systems prevent Indigenous people and Black people and other people of colour from assuming the same freedoms and rights as everyone else. Uh, it, it's a time for us to, to stop and take a pause at how our views around size um, are actually very harmful and, and how unhelpful it can be to suggest that someone lose weight as a way to be healthier. And I applaud you for taking on this, for confronting this head-on. It's a difficult conversation. 
Um, but I encourage people who want to do better to take that moment to to look up some things, to read, to educate ourselves, and to ask um, genuine and and compassionate questions about how things are in the world around us. In this case, not just diet and exercise, is it? That is absolutely true. It's it's much broader than that. And and then that may be a conversation for us to explore in, in another time. Well, let's do that. Dr. Jingras, thank you so much for your time today, and please keep safe. Yes, you as well. Thank you very much. Today, for students in school, may feel a little bit like March, maybe. The weather feels a little like March, one of those warm days that you get right before March break. Yes, that's what it feels like. They're rare. Sometimes you go into March break, it's minus six. But what if it was like this, where it's a little rainy, not exactly hot outside, but this is the final day before you go into March break. And normally it's, hey, everybody gets a break. This time around, it was a little different. It got pushed, pushed to April. And here we are. When you kick something down the road, if you keep walking down that road, eventually you will come upon it again. It could be a can. It could be a rock. It could be a week-long break in school. Well, here it is. Hoof, and here we are, a week-long break in school. It gives us an opportunity to take stock of some things with variants very much represented in case counts, with the case count being what was announced today, up over 4,000 new cases of COVID-19, there are certainly concerns about our schools. Now, you can talk to any public health official. You can hear from the government, and they will continue to talk about schools being safe, and they can show you data that indicates schools are safe. You know, what is safe? Well, that's that's kind of one of those conversations that people have behind the scenes. But what do we do between now and then? What are some ideas? We have seen things presented by Education Minister Stephen Lecce. Let's talk about this from a critical perspective and a critical perspective as we are joined by NDP education critic Merritt Stiles. Ms. Stiles, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. Here we are. The the break is happening. Did you wonder at times whether this would even be kicked down the road maybe a little further, maybe into an early summer vacation? Oh, boy, yes. I think, uh, you know, I'm a parent as well, and I, I have got to say, like, I think a lot of parents and, and education workers and students, too, I, I've been prepared uh, for them to cancel it right up until today. I, I, uh, I, was, I was definitely thinking they might kick it down the road. But, you know, at the, and I'm, I guess on a certain level I'm very glad because I, that they didn't because um, I think that our, our families, our, our kids, and, and the folks that are teaching and working with our kids need a bit of a break. Yeah. Well, that will exist next week, and there will be some scrambling as to what kind of child care will exist yeah. here, there, and all over. But let's kind of look at what is taking place and maybe what you would like to see taking place when it comes to our schools. We hear from public health. We hear from the government themselves. Schools are a safe place. How safe do you feel they are in talking to the people that you speak with? 
Well, I mean, it really depends, of course, on what region we're talking about and what kind of outbreaks are happening. But I think if you're seeing outbreaks in community, then, then you know, and, it's, and, the, and the levels are high, then you can be sure that those are similarly reflected in our schools. And, and you know, the, the government, the, the Minister of Education throws around these statistics, these numbers, but uh, they've been pretty debunked. I, I mean, the truth is they don't know. They don't know. And if you don't really know what the, the case count is in schools, because you're not doing the, the broad testing that's supposed to happen, then it's not really, uh, I think, good public policy, or uh, particularly in a pandemic, to start making these claims. But you know what? What matters to me is, I got to tell you, is, is, is we know that that from an from a education perspective and, and, and their mental health, there's no question that being in school with schools open is like it's got to be a priority for all of us is keeping those schools open. But they have to be kept safely open. And what this government has done from day one of this pandemic is they've ignored the advice of both health experts and education experts and really not listen to the folks on the front line either about what they need to keep things safe. And that is, I think, you know, my leader, Andrew Horvath, has said this before. You know, I think that they've just steered us straight into this third lockdown. We're talking right now with NDP education critic Merritt Stiles. Ms. Stiles, when you talk about things that have been ignored, what would you point to as being some keys? Well, first of all, and going back to uh, last summer, uh, everybody was sort of saying, look, we, we've got to increase the, ensure there's enough distance between students and classrooms. And even a lot of the school boards came up with, you know, great plans for how they could manage that uh, so that we'd have smaller class sizes um, and, and then fewer class, students in class means more distance between them. And, and we were suggesting a cap of 15 students in a class, and the government has completely ignored that. Um, the other thing um, I have to say is, is this testing, this asymptomatic testing, which they got started in February, but they've known since, oh goodness, um, for, 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 for months and months, since last summer, that uh, this was being recommended and it took them this long to get it going and they're still not meeting even, their, even 10% of their own targets. Um, and then there's other things that the, the government likes to talk about, like improving ventilation. But we really haven't seen that play out in schools, in most schools across the province. So they're very behind, and they, they didn't really start to do most of this until now. So it, it, we, are, we, we could have done so much more and so much better. And at the end of the day, why didn't they? I think a lot of it had to do with the fact they didn't want to spend the money. Well, money has certainly come to the forefront in a number of spots during this pandemic, and we'll see what happens going forward. But it's not like we have seen a big announcement saying, OK, here's here's what's coming. So this week is, is not going to be a week of tinkering with classrooms or things like that. We're talking with Merritt Stiles, NDP education critic. When we look at the idea that we need to prioritize certain groups when it comes to vaccinations education workers will come up where do you see that as it plays out would it even be a possibility well the government has said that they're going to count um count teachers and other education workers as essential workers now but uh, and they are talking about finally prioritizing some of those people who are who are in classrooms even when everything else shuts down uh, the special, the, the people that work with special needs kids, like 
educational assistants, they still go to the go to work and are in 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 positions that you know where where they could be quite vulnerable. And so, um, you know, the government is now talking about uh, vaccinating them ahead of time. But look, I mean, here we are in the middle of the third lockdown, and they're just starting to talk about this, and they're not even giving anybody really any details about what that's going to look like. So, you know, ideally next week they would have been doing this. This would have been a big push to get as many education workers vaccinated as possible and other essential workers. And here we are, and it's Friday, and nobody has a clue how this is going to play out. Well, that's that's kind of <laughs> the way we've been living life almost for the last yeah, year when, yeah. when we put all of this into perspective. Yeah. Well, is, is there anything else that, that you look at that could be done right now that even if we're not playing hindsight is 2020 that that you would encourage the government to seriously consider Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that, 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 that moving really fast on, on broader testing is going to be critical. I do think that they should be, you know, their entire approach to vaccination has been just so slow and, and frankly, pretty irresponsible. You know, we, we look at what other jurisdictions have done. We can ramp it up fast. We can do it 24-7, and we can vaccinate as many people as possible. And we know that's going to be critical. Um, and, and the other thing is we, can, we, we should be starting to think now, actually, I mean, we're in this crisis now, but we shouldn't stop thinking as well about what we're going to need to do to help support those those kids and all the people you know also the exhausted people who've been working with them uh you know in the next few months as we as we hopefully emerge from the pandemic um those people are going to need a lot of support our kids are in crisis the mental health issues are are very um it's it's really ramped up now it's a crisis um there's so much more that the government could be doing right now to to help our young people as a final question, Ms. Stiles, one of the things that we have seen is educators making the best of it, you know, in school, out of school, online, in person. There has been quite the variety of ways of delivering the material, the curriculum, for whoever has been trying to learn it. How concerned are you that this year, because of those situations, will have limited kids in, in how much they can learn? Or, or are you okay with with what has been taught and, and what's been made available and, and how that's gone? Well, like you said, I mean, the, our, our educators, for the most part, have done, they've done an amazing job, and they've had to pivot and shift, and they've actually had to do a lot of this by themselves. They've had no support from government. The government has given them no professional development or training. And so, you know, this has really been in a, in a really difficult year for them. And I think that they've done a tremendous job. Um, and I think that uh, also, though, without question, we, we see the impact this is having on students and student learning. Some kids uh, who already maybe struggled are going to have been struggling more. Um, teachers themselves are, like I said, exhausted at wit's end. So what we should be doing heading into this, you know, right now and heading into the next year is we need to be putting really significant additional support into our classrooms. Um, you know, let's keep, let's, let's continue to work to keep class sizes small. Let's add more educational assistance. Let's add free opportunities for, for after school support, you know, tutoring. And, and let's support those educators too to, to help our kids um, catch up, you know. And school is more than just about also, you know, learning your reading, writing, and arithmetic. There's a lot of other, you know, social stuff that happens at school, um, all kinds of different kinds of learning that take place there. And we're going to have kids who have, have fallen behind there, too, and we're going to need to put all kinds of supports in place to help them. And, and, and I really hope the government doesn't underestimate, you know, how important that is. Ms. Tiles, thank you so much for the time. 
Oh, it's it's my pleasure. Thank you. Stay well. You too. Stay safe. That is Merritt Styles, NDP education critic. Wanted to see from someone's perspective who pays attention to this on a daily basis in a critical way, because that's the job of a critic, how she sees things having played out over the past year. And if we look at it from a broader perspective, one of the wildest things about government savings and cost is that it usually starts with the two big ones that they have jurisdiction over at a provincial level. Now, you can say transportation, I suppose, but we're talking health care and we're talking education. And if you were to sit back and say, okay, let's make a top five list of the most important things in our lives. Number one would be health. If you don't have health, you know it. Number two would be our education system, would it not? Would they not be one and two? And yet, when governments go to cut, because they have control over those jurisdictions, where do they automatically look? It's health and it's education. And you try and grind it down and make it work, but at the same time, you're not going to overspend as a government. And that sets everything back. And right now, Ms. Stiles is exactly right. We have had over a year now where you've had students unable to take part in things that help them to round into the people who they will become. The classroom has been a different setting, and educators have done a phenomenal job with what they've had to deal with. We talked about it last year at this time. And I still believe that it was very much like this, where when they decided to keep everybody home after that three-week March break that we had last year, it was like landing the car parts to a car on somebody's front porch and saying, hey, can you have this done on Monday? Just put this together and have it done on Monday. And you might be able to put it together so that the wheels turned and the steering wheel controlled those turn or those wheels, but turn signal well i was only able to get the left turn signal working okay all right that's fine we'll we'll deal with that i wasn't able to get the sound system working one of the speakers in the back is all staticky okay okay wasn't able to get the roof on well the weather's getting warmer treat it like a convertible you see what i mean you wouldn't be able to put absolutely everything into place and a lot of that stuff has been continued. And we were talking with Mark Fisher, who is the director of education with the Thames Valley District School Board, shortly after that. And he said, okay, I like that analogy, but here's a different one. It's like flying a plane, but putting it together as you're in the air. I thought, yeah, that, that maybe sums it up, too, because you are completely flying by the seat of your pants. You know that expression. Well, imagine actually doing it, flying by the seat of your pants. And that's the way that things have continued on. And you can't expect that everything is going to be perfect because of that. And, again, school is not just, as Ms. Stiles said, arithmetic and reading and comprehension. It is so much more. It is taking part in the band, this club, that club, sports. It's about that. It's about hanging out after school, walking to and from the school, and all of those things have been interrupted in some way. And so in coming out of this, we're hopefully going to have all that stuff return. But you do have to have those additional supports ready. 
And if there is one thing that I think you can really fault the Ontario government on, it's certainly not accountability, because I really believe they try and be accountable. You can argue that if you want. But I really believe they try to be accountable. This is not an easy thing to deal with. But the foresight is not where it needs to be. The ability to look down the road. Now, you're looking into the unknown. But when you're looking into the unknown, sometimes you have to reach into your pocket as a government and be ready to spend some money on things that you think will happen. We don't have a lot of money in this province. We just don't. We didn't when the Doug Ford government took over, and that goes back through other governments. Don't turn this into something that is partisan because that doesn't matter. Whatever government is in power is doing what they can to govern the province. So this is not about a, a liberal, conservative, NDP, Green Party. This isn't about anything like that. But you have to be willing to look and say, i got to put some dollars into this. Here's what we think is going to happen, and we're going to put our money on this horse. And that needs to be done for education. That needs to be done for health care. It just does. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.